Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. You all look good today. You look good today. Come on, turn to that person next to you and tell them you look good today. You do, you do. Welcome to Vox Church. If you're new to Vox, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here. Thanks for being a part of our Sunday services. I'm excited to be with you today. I love this time of year. I love Easter Sunday. And I'm telling you, I really do love Palm Sunday too. It's a special day. If this is kind of new for you, Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate what's known as the triumphal entry where Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the waving of palm branches and shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's gonna be our theme today, this Palm Sunday. But uh, I wanna look at Psalm 8. Psalm is a, a, a collection of poems and songs written by prophets. And we're gonna read Psalm 8 today in its entirety. And so starting in verse one, Psalm 8 says this, "'O Lord, our Lord.'" How majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You've established strength because of your, strength because of your foes. I had a hard time reading there. Because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, and you've given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Simple little psalm, nine verses, so much hidden in those simple verses. I wanna talk to you today under the heading, find your fortune, find your fortune. Would you look at your neighbor today and just repeat my title to him, find your fortune. Come on, find your fortune. Like, oh, it's one of those churches. Now just stay with me today. I promise you God has a word for you right where you are. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence, the chance to worship you and lift you up to gather as the people of God. I thank you for every person. Maybe it's their first time or their second time here. I pray a blessing over them today. God, we're grateful that they're here. And thank you for the gathered church, for the people of God. Would you speak to us this Palm Sunday? In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. Find your fortune. You ever heard the legend of Forrest Fenn? Maybe that's not a name you've ever heard not a name that you know, but Forrest Fenn was a art collector in New Mexico, became very, very successful at his business. He amassed uh, millions of dollars worth of artifacts and gold coins, precious gems. And uh, later in his life, he received a cancer diagnosis and it just caused him to reflect and decided he was gonna write a memoir of his life. And he did. He wrote a memoir of his life called The Thrill of the Chase. And he published it. And in one of the chapters, he included a poem. And in the poem, he described a treasure that he had hidden somewhere in the Rocky Mountains full of rubies and diamonds and jewels and gold and worth millions of dollars. And in this poem, in his memoir, he gave nine specific clues to where 
the treasure was located. When this book was published, it set off a fury, a worldwide phenomena of people searching the Rocky Mountains for Forest Fen's treasure. It's a true story. And it took 10 years. And after 10 years, someone actually discovered the treasure chest. In 2020, a chest full of gold, rubies, artifacts was finally found. And Forrest Fenn died three months later at age 90. But the legend of Forrest Fenn continues to grow. Now, I don't know if uh, that type of stuff intrigues you. It does intrigue me. I, it intrigues me. You know, I was uh, a couple of years ago, I took my family on the, uh, the Thimble Islands cruise in Brantford. And, uh, and you hear about Captain Kidd and how he buried his treasure somewhere on the East Coast, probably in Connecticut, maybe in your backyard. And, uh, and it got me thinking, you know, man, wouldn't it be pretty incredible to find Captain Kidd's buried? What could we do for Jesus if we just discovered, oh, Lord, would you guide me <laughs> to Captain Kidd's treasure? I don't know what it is about those stories that, that captures my imagination. I'm not sure if you've ever felt that feeling to find your fortune, that desire, but we love it in the movies, right? We love the idea that the Ark of the Covenant is buried in some warehouse in the Midwest, you know, or that, that there's a great Egyptian treasure hidden behind, um, you know, Mount Rushmore, and all we got to do is find the open door to get to it, and it's right there. Or there's a civil warship that crossed the Atlantic full of gold, and it's now hidden under a sand dune in Africa somewhere, and all these ideas of finding our fortune, these tales, these stories, I think maybe it's one of the reasons why we like Easter egg hunts, you know, because little kids get to run around and find the egg with the treasure inside. And it's like, oh, I got it. I found it. And that's exciting. There's something amazing about that. As a kid growing up, the woods behind my house was a treasure chest of mystery. And I remember one time me and my friend Will, we found this, we found this old metal train from probably, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. But to us, it was like 20,000 years ago, you know? And it was like, wow, this thing's amazing. We cleaned it off and we kept it for years because it was like a treasure that we discovered in the woods outside our house. And uh, it's interesting that this theme is so consistent in the stories that we tell because I think something inside that story is true and accurate that underneath all of these stories of finding fortune, there's something actually in our hearts placed there by God for the thrill of the chase. Something inside of you that is searching for treasure, searching for something beyond what you can see on the surface of life, searching for something more that's, that's hidden underneath the surface. Jesus talked about this. He said that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field and that when a man found it, he saw its value and its worth and it was so precious that he sold everything that he had just to obtain that field. What a treasure, what a mystery, right? And so it speaks to this thing inside of us that can't be satisfied with silver or gold. We can't be satisfied with the treasures of this life. There's something inside of you that's looking for purpose. There's something inside of you that's looking for meaning, that's looking for substance, that's looking for answers, something in you that's looking for eternal life. And underneath all of those desires, there is the universal human desire to find God to know him for yourself, to see him as he truly is. And I want to suggest to you today that Psalm 8 is actually a treasure map to find your fortune. It's a treasure map that hidden in this psalm, there are secrets to understanding who God is, a revelation of his glory, and a picture of who you are called to be, and if you will see it. 
you can learn what Palm Sunday is really supposed to be about. And so the psalmist begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? He ends with that exact same phrase. That's called an inclusio. And it's supposed to frame the way we understand the entire psalm. In other words, David, the psalmist, is telling us that this psalm is about God's majesty. It's about his wonder. It's about his glory. It's about his splendor. And so we should stand back and go, what is it that's so wonderful about God? Well, he tells us right away, how majestic is your That was the easy one. Yeah, that's a free one. How majestic is your name, right? How majestic is your name in all the earth? Now, if you know your Hebrew, he doesn't use the same word for Lord in this psalm. When he says, oh Lord, our Lord, he actually says, oh Yahweh, Adonai. And those are two different Hebrew words. The word Yahweh is the personal name of God that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh is the name that was so sacred to the Israelites that they wouldn't even speak it out loud. Some have translated it Jehovah, right? Or Yahweh. It is this mysterious name scholars call the Tetragrammaton, okay? And it's this name that has this mystery behind it because its translation is, I am who I am. I'm beyond what you can quantify or measure. I am before all things, and I am beyond all things. I am who I am. And so Adonai means master. And so David says, oh, Yahweh, our master, how majestic is this name? And then he starts to describe God's glory, right? He says, you've set your glory in the heavens, okay? And then he says, the earth and the universe are the works of your fingers. I like that. Because he doesn't say it's the work of your arm or the work of your hand. He describes God in such a way that it's like, you know, like a a man building a little model of something. You know, it's like, oh, I just made the universe, you know, like with my fingers. I didn't really need the strength of my arm, you know. And then he tells us about the moon and the stars and all these things. And, And what's he trying to get at here? He's trying to help us understand that if you want to grasp the glory of God, start by looking up. Go ahead and tell the person next to you, start by looking up. Come on, tell them. Start by looking up. Start by looking up. Start by, okay, you're like, yeah, that's the ceiling. No, not not that. Start by looking up beyond that. Look at the skies. Look at the cosmos. And I'm not a scientist, but we do know more today about the moon and the stars and the planets than we've ever known in human history. And it's interesting because the more that we learn about the cosmos, the more that we're faced with the reality that everything in life, that you and I sitting here right now, breathing and living on planet Earth, that even that really is a miracle. And you might say, well, no, it's not, Justin. It's, it's just, it's not a miracle. No, I think it might be. Take, for example, the size of our planet, right? We take that for granted. When's the last time you thanked God for the size of the planet? Probably not any time recently, but the size of the planet is unique. If earth were slightly larger or slightly smaller, life on earth could not exist. So if earth was a little bit larger, gravity would increase, methane and ammonia gases would linger on the surface of the earth, and people couldn't breathe. If it was slightly smaller, water vapor would dissipate, and we would not have water. We cannot survive without water. But it's not just the size of the earth that's important. It's also the other planets that seem to be fine-tuned in order to allow life on earth to exist. For example, Jupiter. Now, you remember in fifth grade when you studied the planets and you learned about Jupiter. Jupiter's really big, okay? It's so big that you could fit 1,320 Earths in one Jupiter. It's massive, and it's so big that the gravitational pull of Jupiter sucks all the bacteria 
crazy you know, comets and meteors and things floating through the universe into its orbit and protects planet Earth from getting hit. And so the next time you get on your knees and thank God for the day and the breath in your lungs, maybe take a minute to thank him for Jupiter too. Because if Jupiter wasn't there, we probably would have been wiped out by a comet a long time ago. But it's not just the Earth's size. It's not just Jupiter. It's also the moon. If the moon were just a little bit bigger, the tides would be so massive that life would not be able to exist. If it was just a little bit smaller, the tides would not cleanse and replenish the oceans. If the moon was just a little bit further away, it would destabilize the rotation of the earth. In 1960s, scientists had two different characteristics that were so fine-tuned that were necessary for life on earth to exist. By 2001, that had grown to a list of 150 characteristics. And we know today that the probability of all this fine-tuning coming into alignment is so infinitesimally small that any honest statistician has to say, the fact that we're alive is an absolute absolute miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. David summed that all up with, you've set your glory in the heavens. That's how he said it. He said, you said, it's glorious. It's glorious. And the more we learn, the more we see how glorious it is that God's the one who created all this with his fingers. Just, yeah, okay. All right. There we go. There's the universe. There's galaxies. There's stars. All of it. And just when we think we understand the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God, the psalmist drops on us verse two, right? Look at verse two, look at verse two. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Some of you are like, dang, the avengers are in the Bible. That's kind of cool, right? Like there's, you know, there's the Iron Man. They're all right there. Yeah, I like them. That's pretty neat. But we read that verse and we're like, what does that mean? What in the world is that? You, you establish strength through babies and infants? It's like, wait, hold, time out. Babies are not strong. If you have a baby, you know that they don't feed themselves. They don't change their own diapers. They don't, you know, uh, they're completely vulnerable, dependent, and weak. They are not a symbol of strength, and yet the poet is making them a symbol of God's strength and that he establishes strength through babies. What is this? This is a riddle, okay? It's a riddle for us to unravel, for us to understand. It actually comes in two parts. The first part of the riddle compares the glory of God to the weakness of a baby. But then in the second part of the riddle, he speaks of the creation narrative where God made the universe. We're told in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and how he created man and woman in his image, and he made us from the dust of the earth. And so the second part of the riddle compares the greatness of the cosmos to the smallness of mankind, right? What is man that you're mindful of him? The earth is so great. It's so amazing. It's so vast in the universe. And yet we have been given this position of power, this position of dominion. And so what's it describing? See, the first part and the second part are both echoes of one another. The first part contrasts the glory of God and the weakness of baby. The second part contrasts the glory of creation and the weakness of people. And we're told that God defeats his enemies with infants and he rules the world with human beings. And if you're mildly confused right now, congratulations, you're paying attention. Because it is confusing. It's like, what, what, what is, what, what? It's trying to teach us that God is, in fact, glorious. He's glorious, but his glory is not revealed the way that we expect it to be. It's not manifest in the way that we anticipate it will be. That our view of God needs some correction. It needs some adjustment. I love what theologian Dane Ortland said. He said, we tend to project our natural expectations about who God is onto him instead of fighting to let the Bible surprise us into what God 
himself says. Because this is surprising. And the further you dig and the more you observe, the more unexpected and counterintuitive it becomes. Because the poet is teaching us that if you want to know God, you can't only look to his glory in the heavens, you also must look to his strength in the weak babies. You can't only look to the powerful and the great because God, don't miss this, has chosen to reveal his glory through lowliness. That if you want to understand God's majesty, you have to learn that he's hidden it in meekness. And in fact, all of the scriptures testify to this truth. That's why he chose Abraham and Sarah, an elderly couple, unqualified to be the parents of a nation, and he birthed through them a miracle child. It's why he chose Gideon, the smallest man in the smallest clan, to become the deliverer of Israel when he didn't have nearly enough people or enough power. It's why he chose Ruth, the outsider, or Esther, who was, who was uh, in a, a moment of oppression and yet God raised her up as a deliverer, or Samuel, or Joseph, or the prophets. In fact, the more you learn about the Old Testament, the more you realize that it's a collection of people who are either too old or too young or too poor or too small or too weak or too insignificant, that God consistently seems to skip the worthy and the brilliant and the powerful and choose the foolish and the weak, the insignificant and the lowly, which is good news because that means he plans to use you, right? So go ahead and turn to your neighbor and tell him the Lord's gonna use you. Come on, just tell him the Lord is gonna use me. He's gonna use you because he uses the unexpected person. Maybe this was the theme that was in David's mind when he wrote this Psalm and he began it with the phrase to the choir master upon the Giddith, right? Now, he didn't read that phrase because it's not even verse one. It's like the pre-verse pre one, okay? It's right there in the Bible, Psalm 8, to the choir master upon the giddeth because this was a song sung by the choirs and you were to do it upon the giddeth. What's a giddeth? We don't know. Nobody actually knows what a giddeth is. We assume that it's a musical instrument because this was a song, but that word giddeth could also be translated gittite. Oh, the wonders of this psalm. Get tight. And if you know the story of David, you know that he, when he was young and overlooked and small and weak, David killed Goliath the Gittite. And so the psalm, according to David, is upon the Gittite. <laughs> upon the Gittite. What I learned that day from David, Psalm 8, upon the Gittite, as I stood upon his chest and looked down at a great giant that I just overcame with a rock, what I learned upon the Gittite, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. I can't fit you in a box. I can't pretend that I've got you figured out because as soon as I do, you use a baby to defeat the enemy. You use a shepherd boy to overwhelm a giant. See, God is a lion. It's one of the phrases used to describe God, which means he's fearless and mighty and strong and powerful and terrifying. But just as you begin to understand him as a lion, he shows up as a lamb. Weak, and feeble, and easily overlooked because he intends to teach you something fundamental about his nature, that God is unexpectedly humble. He's humble. He's humble. But it wasn't until Jesus came that we learned that the riddle of Psalm 8, stay with me today, is also a prophecy. There are layers to this psalm. And it's not just a riddle about God's nature, it's also a prophecy about salvation. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
God put on flesh and blood in the form of a human being, lived a perfect life, and at the age of 33, entered into the city of Jerusalem 483 years exactly to the day that it was prophesied he would through the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 on Palm Sunday, seated on a donkey as the prophets foretold he would. And they waved palm branches and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on that Palm Sunday. But then Matthew 21 tells us what happened once he got into the city of Jerusalem. Look at it with me. It says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, don't miss this, Hosanna to the son of David. They, that's the religious leaders, were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read, quote, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Jesus quotes Psalm 8, verse 2, on Palm Sunday when the children cry Hosanna because he wanted you to know that the riddle of Psalm 8 is also a prophecy to describe the Savior. And so when he says, oh Lord, it's about to get crazy, our Lord, oh Yahweh Adonai, right? Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, the I am that I am. Jesus is named by the angel, the Hebrew word Yahshua, which is a combination of Yahweh and Shua, the I am that I am who has come to save. And so he's saying, I am that I am in human form, walking among you who's majestic in my name. But I'm also the baby that God would defeat the enemies through and reveal his strength. Jesus is saying, I am the creator who fashioned the universe with my fingers, but I'm also the man that was made a little lower than the angels. And through my resurrection, I've been given dominion over all the works of God's hands, crowned with glory and honor. And upon his return, we will see all things in subjection under his feet. So hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the planet, God was hiding his plan of salvation in Psalm 8 so that when he showed up on a donkey and quoted Psalm 8, we would recognize his peculiar glory and something deep inside of you would come alive. Because God has placed inside your heart a divine receptor that when you hear of the lion who is also the lamb, your mind can't comprehend it, but your spirit knows it's true. That no one invents a God like this. No one creates a God like this. The lion who is the lamb seems to be a conflict, but that collision awakens your spirit and is the birthplace of faith. And something in you knows that this is really God. And he came on a donkey. How could he? Why would he? Theologian Jonathan Edwards tried to describe this. He said it like this. Christ, as he is God, is infinitely great and high above all. He is higher than all the kings of the earth. For he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is higher than the heavens and higher than the highest angels of heaven. 
so great is he that all men, all kings and princes are as worms of the dust before him. All nations are as the drop of the bucket, the light of dust of the balance. He is so high that he is infinitely above our reach and we cannot be profitable to him and above our conceptions that we cannot comprehend him. And yet he is one of infinite condescension. None are so low or inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take a gracious notice of them. He condescends not only to the angels humbling himself to behold the things that are done in heaven, but he also condescends to such poor creatures as men. And that not only so as to take notice of princes and great men, but of those who are of meanest rank and degree, the poor of the world, such as are commonly despised by their fellow creatures, Christ does not despise. His condescension is great enough to become their friend, to become their companion, to unite their souls to him in spiritual marriage. This is the signature of God's glory, majesty and meekness. But did you catch what Edward said there at the end? That he condescends to such a great degree that he unites our souls to him in spiritual marriage. What in the world is that all about? See, Psalm 8 is not just a revelation of God's heart, that he is majestic and meek. And it's not just a prophecy about Jesus, that he's the fulfillment of every verse. It is also the revelation of God's purpose for you, the revelation of God's plan for you that God never intended to simply forgive us of our sins through the cross, but that he always intended to rule with us, that God would actually invite us into his glory. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And so Christ became a man lived the life that I could not, died the death that I deserved, conquered death on my behalf, put his spirit in my heart and made an eternal covenant with all those who believe a spiritual marriage. And anyone here who's ever married up like me knows that when you marry up, everything that your spouse has now belongs not to them, but to us. So it is in Christ that when his living spirit takes residence in our heart, a spiritual marriage takes place where the spirit of God and the spirit of man are brought together in divine union so that all the treasures of Christ now belong to those who believe and in spiritual marriage I've been united with his victory united with his peace that's why he said my peace I give you I leave it with you united to his joy united in his power and united even in his victory over death John chapter 11 Jesus says I'm the resurrection and the life Whoever believes, I'm wondering if there's anybody who believes today in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Friend, that's either the most ridiculous thing ever spoken by a person or the most important thing ever uttered by human lips shall never die shall never die. If that doesn't wake you up with a smile on your face, then it hasn't gotten into your heart. Shall never die. Find your fortune. Find your fortune. 
It's in union with Christ where all his promises are made real because eternal life doesn't start the day that your heart stops beating. Eternal life starts the day that you say yes to him. His eternal life already lives in you. You might be hearing all this today and you're like, okay, that was a little confusing, but I'm kind of with you mostly. Um, Cool, but that doesn't help me with my mortgage. (laughs) It doesn't help me with my marriage. It doesn't help me with the problems I have. It doesn't help me with the struggles. It doesn't help me with my current issues and problems. And you say that God promises a life of power and victory and dominion. And how 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 does that become real? So glad you asked. The only way to discover the treasure is to follow the map. Forrest Fenn would tell you that. The only way to discover the treasure is to follow the map. And Psalm 8 is a map. Maps out five truths that lead us to a life of supernatural power. Five truths that when lived and applied and believed, lead us to a life of supernatural power. I'll come back next week and I'll share them. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to share them right now. I'm just going to share them right now. Truth number one. This one's tough. (laughs) This one's worth the price of admission. Truth number one. Life is about God. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Not my name. Not my plans. And this is, I think, maybe where some of us get tripped up right from the beginning, right? Because, oi, I thought life was about me, right? I, I mean, I said life was about God, and then I lived on Monday like life was about me, Right? Life is about God. Life is about God. That means everything I own. That means everything I have. That means every day that I live. It's not about asking him like a genie to bless my plans. It's about me fully submitting and surrendering to his plans. How majestic is your name? Life is about God. I'm afraid if I do that, Justin, I'm going to lose myself. Well, that's why Jesus taught that those who lose themselves actually find themselves because the God that you're surrendering to loves you more than you can ever conceive or realize. And so in your surrender, he doesn't leave you broken but makes you whole. And when you lose yourself, you find him, which allows you to find yourself. And so making life about God is the absolute best choice you will ever make in this world. And in it, you'll find fulfillment and peace and life and joy. And yet so many of us are still debating that topic and still wondering why the power of God doesn't manifest in our life. And it's not going till until the question is settled. Life is about him. And I look at the earth and the moon and Jupiter and everything else. When did I ever get in my head that it was about me? There's almost 8 billion people on this planet and you're gonna die someday soon. Just wanna make you happy here at church. The reality is that life's not about you. It's about him. And it's always been about him. And if you ever wanna find your purpose or the power that he promises, it begins with, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. Life is about God. Truth number two, God communicates his majesty through lowliness. Until we understand this, we'll keep looking for God where he's not. Because he's not in a million dollars. He's not in a whole lot of prestige. He's not in your name written in lights. That's not where you'll find him out of the mouth of babies. He establishes strength. God communicates his majesty through lowliness. Too often we walk by him because he looks like a needy child or an elderly person or someone that's easy to overlook because they don't give you anything. And yet Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Majesty through lowliness. Truth number three, Christ did for you what you could not do for yourself. This is the mystery of Psalm 8, that he was the one who was made lower than the angels, who was then crowned in splendor 
because of the cross. He did for you what you could not do for yourself. He was the man who lived the perfect life. Truth number four, through Christ, God revealed the way to glory, the way to glory. It was not just Christ's way. Christ was, in fact, pointing the way. That's why Jesus taught that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but then the flip side, that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And that's the fifth truth. God intends to share his power with the humble. It was always his plan to make you powerful. It was always his plan to make you victorious, to teach you life and peace and joy. But maybe this is what the church has been missing. Maybe this is the root of our problem, that we have programs, Bible studies and activities and meetings, but maybe somewhere we've lost the simple heart of humility. I heard a story about um, Thomas Aquinas who was brought to Rome to meet with Pope Innocent many, many years ago, and the Pope brought him around the Vatican. And they were talking about Acts chapter 4 where uh, Peter and John pray for a beggar and heal him, and they say, silver and gold I have not, but what I have I give to you, and they, they heal the man. And they're walking around the Vatican, and they're looking at all these beautiful cathedrals and these glorious you know, uh, buildings and all this gold and, and all, this, all this power and all this architecture, and the Pope turns to Aquinas and he says, the church no longer has to say, silver and gold I have none. And Thomas Aquinas looks back and replies, yes, but no longer is the church able to say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. <laughs> and so here's the thought. Is it possible that we've lost our power because we've lost our humility? Is it possible that somewhere along the line we made life about us? Somewhere along the line, we became consumed with what God could do for me. And we didn't realize that life was actually about him. But this is the lesson of Palm Sunday, that the king enters on a donkey. <laughs> so how can you enter? How can you enter? If he's called you to a life of power and a life of victory, how can you enter? The... Uh, the ancient Israelites built a temple to the Lord. On the Temple Mount, there was the Holy of Holies and all the places that were most sacred to the people of Israel. And it was there that they touched the presence of God. And to get to the Temple Mount, there was a great staircase that was built. And the staircase led to the Temple Mount and the pilgrims would need to travel to Jerusalem, then climb and ascend this great staircase and then they would be in the presence of God. Then they would understand the power and the nearness of God but one interesting thing that the builders did is that they made the stairs different lengths. So some were wider and some were narrower. And if the pilgrim would ascend the staircase by looking to his left or his right or by looking up, he was very likely to trip on the different size stairs. And so it required that in order to ascend the staircase, you needed to continually keep your head down. Because they knew that the humble and only the humble reached the top. 
And so I wonder if this might be where we've gotten tripped up. I wonder if this might be what's going on underneath the surface of our often powerless faith. That we forgot that the king shows up on a donkey. And that pride, cunning as it is, has found a home in our hearts where we now negotiate God's position rather than surrender to his majesty. And then we wonder why prayers go unanswered and why power seems out of reach. But God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So what would happen if you and I followed the map? What would happen if our whole church embraced this inner posture where we just followed the map? Life's about God, not me. His majesty is seen in lowliness. Christ has done for me what I could not do. He's modeled for me a way, the way of the humble. And God shares his power with those who humble themselves. You know, I think the world, the whole world, is waiting to see the power of God in the church. And I wonder if God is waiting to see the people of God humble themselves, that he might empower them. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Just stand with me today. We're going to pray. you do something with me? Would you just take a moment and bow your head and close your eyes? I want to invite you to pray a dangerous prayer. To simply pray, God, expose my pride. God, expose my pride. I am often self-reliant and posturing pretending that I have control that I don't have. I can't keep my heart beating. I can't keep my blood pumping. I can't keep my lungs breathing. I am not in control. I am one of eight billion people on this planet today, and life is not about me. What is man that you are mindful of us? that you care for us, and yet you do. And so today, God, would you humble me that my heart might be postured in such a way that your power can move through me. If I've puffed myself up, deflate my balloon. If I've walked with a strut, teach me to walk with a limp. If I've relied on myself, show me that you're my bread of life. Would you make that real for you and him right now? Lord, expose my pride. Lord, expose my pride. How is it snuck in, cunning, 
as it is. Lord, today I want to intentionally humble myself before you. How majestic is your name? Would you be glorified right now? I want to invite you to take the next few minutes to really worship God, to sing a song about him and not make it about you, to fix your eyes on him and elevate his glory above yourself. I want to invite you just to take a few minutes and recenter your life around reality that he is God. And then I'm not. Lord Jesus, we invite you now to teach our hearts what's true. That as we see the lion and the lamb, we would stand in awe of the God who is majestic in lowliness. And we would worship. We welcome your presence even right now. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97,000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.